Hey there, you're listening to Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer, and this is a podcast about streaming movies, series, and everything in between. On this episode of SVU, Allison and I want to know, what kind of friggin' person bashes in their friend's knee? Who would do that to a friend? Yes, we're talking about last year's unconventional Tanya Harding biopic, I, Tanya, which is now streaming on Hulu. Matt, I just want you to know that if you ever glue-lead me, I would eventually forgive you, but not until I made a deal for my own NBC documentary and also for an Olympic commentator spot. Are you trying to say that I'm the Tanya Harding of this podcast? No, I would never say anything like that. I mean, especially since you went along with my proposal to devote the second half of this episode to figure skating movies. Uh, Actually, well, that's a fairly compact genre, so we expanded it to movies involving ice skating in general. We'll be offering some recommendations, and of course, all of them will be available to rent or stream at home right now. But first, get your skates straight, make sure you don't break a lace, and put out that cigarette. Let's talk I, Tanya. The haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. I was the best figure skater in the world at one point in time. Call out a clean skate. Stop talking to her. That girl is your enemy. Jeff was my first date ever. And my mom came. It's neat to see a wholesome American family. I don't have a wholesome American family. Nothing's ever your fault. I was embarrassed for you. My entire life, I've been told I wouldn't amount to anything. You know what? Maybe I would. So here's how things work here at Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. You, the listener, tell us what you'd like us to review next. And at the end of each episode, we give you three different films or sometimes TV series and let you vote on which one you'd like to hear us talk about. Last time, your choices were Miguel Arteta and Mike White's Beatrice at Dinner, which you can find on Amazon and Hulu. Uh, I, Tanya, which is on Hulu. And Fatih Akin's In the Fade, also on Hulu, a very Hulu-heavy trio this time. And I, Tanya, ended up eking out the win, but it was just barely. Beatrice at Dinner really held its own. So I, Tanya is directed by Craig Gillespie, who is an Australian director. He is responsible for Lars and the Real Girl and the Fright Night remake, um, which, Matt, I don't know if you remember this. We actually discussed back in, I believe, SVU number 10. Uh, I was trying to find that episode it seems to have vanished from the internet, weirdly, in our archives. They go straight from 9 to 11. Huh. So maybe something, did something scandalous happen on this episode? We'll have to figure out. Um, but it was, we did talk about it once. Uh, I do feel like it's fair to say that this movie is a stylistic surprise coming from Craig Gillespie. Uh, it is a fourth wall breaking, dueling narrator's approach to a biographical film that includes these kind of faux documentary style interviews with the characters who are played by the same actors in aged-up makeup, uh, and that are based on or at least draw from actual interviews with the people involved, including, first and foremost, Tanya Harding, who is played by Margot Robbie in the film. And uh, she was the woman at the center of figure skating's biggest scandal when she was implicated in a plot 
to remove rival Nancy Kerrigan by having her attacked. Uh, Sebastian Stan plays Jeff Galuli, Tanya Harding's now ex-husband, who planned the attack. And Alice and Jenny plays Lavana Golden, Harding's um, acerbic mother, let's say, a part that Jenny won an Oscar for. Uh, so Iconia is a movie that allows... Uh, a lot of tragic events to unfold under this tone of dark comedy, especially with regard to depictions of the abuse that Harding has talked about suffering at the hands of first Lavana, her mother, and then Jeff. Uh, both of them deny that, or at least downplay uh, what they say actually happened. You have scenes like the one in which the dire straits Romeo and Juliet plays over a montage of teenage Tanya and Jeff falling in love. And these kind of like young, frenzied, romantic clenches get put side by side with these instances of domestic violence. Uh, or there's a scene where Lavana throws a knife without thinking about it at her daughter. And it's this incredibly grim bit of slapstick. Um, so Matt, I wanted to ask you first, uh, since I've gotten into some unexpected arguments about this, especially when I first saw the film at Toronto, the film festival last year, do you feel that the film ever feels like it's making light of these circumstances? Or more broadly, do you feel like the film ever kind of uh, messes up with regard to the line between laughing at and laughing with? I generally don't. And that's one of the things I found sort of surprising about the movie was, I, you know, I didn't see it uh, like I wasn't amongst the very first people to see it. And so I did see some of that reaction on Twitter that some people were I mean, I don't know if they were offended, but it's sort of that's how I sort of interpreted it was that they they found this movie to be cruel little, to her. Yeah, cruel to her or 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 offensive or you know like or that making light of domestic violence um all that sort of thing and I I guess I mean I've seen this movie now th- 3 times and I just I just don't have that reading of it. I mean, it certainly is at times it is a very dark comedy, but uh, I, I guess I would. I, I just, I just don't share that view of it. I mean, it's to me I, I, the movie is like, even though I don't think it's directly or explicitly based on them, it feels to me like a very faithful adaptation of the documentaries that I have seen in the last couple of years about Tanya Harding and about her her relationship with Nancy Kerrigan. There was a couple that I've seen. There was a thirty for thirty about about the story and then there was another the one the price of gold i think the price it was of called. gold yeah the that and, gold yeah yep and then there were, i think there was a second one that was on abc or a different uh, a, a, a broadcast network i think that had contributions from both Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding and i feel like the the woman i see in i tanya is very much the woman the real Tanya Harding that I saw in those films, that the the presentation of her life, the depiction of her, her attitude, um, I feel like I feel like it's a pretty it, it, it's it's good enough in terms of the historical record that I don't I don't really feel like it's 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 um, making fun of her or or mistreating her um, or mistreating the way she was mistreated. I, I feel like it gets a lot of this stuff maybe if not right then true to what she believes and 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 in some ways true to what Jeff Kaluli believes cuz uh, his 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 uh, interviews or his testimony or whatever is sort of 
um, part of the, the the backbone of how they made the movie. But yeah, I, I after seeing the movie so many times, I, I still don't really understand that complaint. I have to be honest with you. Yeah, and uh, Nanette Burstein, and I can't remember how I loved her name, but that's who directed uh, the Price, Price of Gold, Gold documentary. Yeah. Right, and the other documentary is uh, Nancy and Tanya, which was produced by NBC. NBC, and okay. Yeah, and that's the one I was, tr- like, in in our intro, uh, name-checking a bit, or at least trying to reference, because, you know, of course, Nancy Kerrigan does not agree to appear in The Price of Gold, and it seemed clear afterwards that that was because she had struck this larger deal with NBC as the Sochi Olympics were happening, right. in which she did appear in this rival documentary and also became a commentator for the Olympics. So they're both interesting documentaries. And in some ways, they do feel like two sides of the story, even though, as I feel like this movie like kind of attests, there is no such thing as any... <laughs> any one side they're only everyone's personal side uh one of the big arguments it makes and something that i think it does do well is to say that everyone has their own subjective truth and it doesn't matter in some ways you can never get any actual truth because this is just what exists in everyone's mind at this point right and uh yeah i feel like i also don't feel like this this is ever cruel to her. I think it does this very difficult thing, which is to reflect her attitude towards talking about her own poverty, uh, her own experiences with abuse, which is that she has this really kind of dark norm. It has this really, this normalcy to her, right? That right. she, this is how she grew up. And it, you know, she went, as she says herself, this is what how she learned about like a kind of like love is expressed that it comes, you know, sometimes with affection and sometimes with like a fist. And I think that that's a really sad point of view to express. But I think that there are a lot of, a lot of people who get caught in the cycle who feel that way and who talk about it the way she does, you know, with this kind of wry, dark acceptance of the fact that it was uh it it was this thing that she put up with uh that she had come to believe was normal so i i thought that's actually one of the stronger points of this movie a movie i like a lot uh and you know i've seen it i think i've seen it three times as well now i just really enjoy what it does with the documentary format or the the biopic format and and with the documentary format and kind of playing at the conventions of documentary in ways that, funny enough, made me think of The Tale, an exceptionally grimmer movie uh, that is now on HBO uh, that was at Sundance this year. And that also has, is a fiction film that includes documentary style interviews in it. yeah, I think I, I I feel like the ways in which the the that her sometimes really kind of sad experiences growing up are depicted in this are done in a really brave way. In that they are done in a subjective way. They reflect how she talks about it. Yeah, and and to to sort of take the flip side because I've also heard from people who have the sort of almost opposite reaction, which is to say, well, that this movie um, treats Tanya Harding like a hero and that she 
uh, was definitely a part of this attack, and she knew about it, and she is a villain, and this movie um, absolves her of guilt and lets her off the hook. And, I mean, one of the things I like about it is that I don't really think that it does that at all. And and even if you think that it, it says that she wasn't necessarily involved with that specific crime, I mean, one of the things that I like about this movie quite a bit is that I think it does a very nice job of showing us the crappy childhood she had, the abuse that she suffered from her mother and then from Jeff Galuli. Um But it it doesn't – I don't think it does uh, absolve her of, of her – you know, the things that she did wrong or, or at least let slide. Like I don't think it's this rose-colored portrait of her. I think it's surprisingly – even-handed and even down to little things like you know watching it again and this was something i noticed like the second time that i saw it but i appreciated it i still appreciate it now is there's that sort of that i think they put it in the trailer even there's like the moment of her like smoking before she goes out uh on the ice and like she's mm-hmm. smoking and then she drops the cigarette and she puts it out with her ice skate and like oh, so good yeah, it's like that, a, that image is so good yeah it's a great like shot it's a great moment but like you know that's her before she goes out on the ice but then afterwards you know like when she has a bad skate you know suddenly afterwards we see her you know uh with her asthma inhaler, like all of a sudden she's asthmatic. You know, we we don't really see her having trouble breathing uh, when she's smoking cigarettes. But uh, you know, after when when the skate goes badly, suddenly she has a- asthma. When when the skate goes well, um, there's 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 no problems breathing at all. And 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 again to the to the to the Tanya Harding that I've seen in in the documentaries that feels very true to that woman. Um, that like nothing is ever her fault. That's that's a very that's like the vibe that I got from both of those films, those documentaries. And I feel like this movie really captures that about her. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But I think that's very true to how she presents herself in those documentaries. And I thought that this film really captured that very nicely in terms of Margot Robbie and her performance, um, in which sometimes she can be sort of so. I don't know, so sympathetic, and then other times she can be kind of incredibly obnoxious or monstrous. I just thought, I I, I think that um, the movie does a really nice job depicting her, and I think Margot Robbie does a terrific job playing her as well. Really, really good performance. Uh, I think there, so there was an interview in the New York Times, Taffy Bredesser actor, who is a writer I really like, and who's great at profiles. And she did an interview with Tanya Harding in January this year. And there's a paragraph in it that I think a lot about with regard to the movie. So here's what she wrote. Here's the thing. A lot of what she said wasn't true. She contradicted herself endlessly. But she reminded me of other people I've known who have survived trauma and abuse and who tell their stories again and again to explain what has happened to them, but also to process it themselves. The things she said that were false, they were spiritually true meaning they made her point, and she seemed to believe them. So much has been made about the tone of the movie. Does it play abuse for laughs? Does it love her or hate her? Is she vindicated? Do we forgive her? Sit with her for an hour, and you will understand that there might be no other way to go with the material. This is how she sounds. It would also be wrong to portray her as anything other than who she is. And I think that's just such a great way of, I think, you know, making the point we're trying to get at, which is that... 
in some ways that yes that like to to kind of try and to, to try and co- like cast the movie or her as either hero or villain or victim or abuser or liar or truth teller is to miss the point when this is a movie that is about a subjective experience it is about her particular truth uh, and I yeah I agree I think that Robbie is really good at showing the genuine distress that Tanya is in and her loneliness and how she feels while at the same time her tendency to never take responsibility and her tendency to blend, like blur away any inconvenient truth. I like the part where she is talking about how, you know, things were going really bad with her skating and it wasn't her fault. And the movie cuts to all of the ways in which she was not training properly and was like drinking. Right. And, uh, yeah. And you're like, of course, like there, you know, someone can both be a victim of, unfairness and class, you know, uh, class discrimination and run up against this wall of what a real dainty figure skater is supposed to look like, this kind of ideal of womanhood that they're supposed to represent. But at the same time, someone also has, she also has agency and there are parts of her life that uh, are not just bad things happening to her, but her making bad choices. Right. Yeah, I, I I think that that paragraph that you cited was I think that nailed it. I thought that was perfectly put, and I, I, I and I agree. I think that's one of the strengths of the movie is that whether you uh, love her or hate her, I think that the movie does kind of reflect the the viewpoint of of the of the actual woman. I think that it does a really nice job of capturing capturing all those different sides which i appreciated i mean the the flip side and i you know i generally i do like this movie a lot maybe not quite as much as you do but like to me the flip side of that and like where i i think it kind of stumbles a little bit is in some of the the smaller roles and particularly um the guy uh sean eckhart the bodyguard the guy who's you know who's the the I, I don't know. I, the mastermind. It seems like a very generous, very <laughs> generous. The opposite. He's yeah. the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. He fashions himself as the mastermind. I don't know what else to call him. But the guy who, along with Galuli, is responsible for the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. And you know, at the end of the movie, they show some news footage of the real guy. And I actually went out because I was curious after seeing the movie. One of the times uh, on YouTube, you can find like some footage of the real guy and he is pretty silly, but, <laughs> yeah. but the performance to me just felt a little too broad. Um, mm. You know, that, that almost seems like some, he, it seems like he's playing that, that guy as if he is a character in like a Christopher guest movie. Mm. And it just, to me feels very, very broad. And again, like the movie goes out of its way to find the nuances in Tanya Harding and to some extent in Jeff Galuli too. And, sure, and, and I feel like it, it deliberately does not do that um, with the Sean Eckhart character. And who knows? Maybe that's – maybe from a, a storytelling perspective, that's impossible. Maybe he really was as outlandish as he seems in this film. But he, he – one, I feel like he just – tonally, he doesn't really fit. Um, and then two, it just it, – it kind of to me undermines the – the, the message uh, for the main characters and, you know, trying to expose this complexity and trying to really get at how they are. They're more than the tabloid villains that they were made out to be, 
when you treat this other guy as like even more ridiculous than the tabloid villain that he was made out to be. I don't know. That's how I feel yeah. about him. Uh, he doesn't bother me. I find him pretty <laughs> funny. But uh, he is also, uh, he's he's dead, right? He died um, at age 40. And he, the, I think that's clear in the movie in that we never see interviews with present day him. They use footage instead. Right. They, they fake but footage I think that, that looks like vintage footage. footage. Yeah. yeah. But I think that that also maybe makes him a convenient uh, less nuanced character, right? Like there's not a person to speak for themselves right now and, you know, attempt to defend themselves and attempt to give context to their place in this. So I wonder if that's a kind of side effect is that it made him a little easier to turn into what, you, you know, this character you see is like less nuanced. Right. But yeah, it didn't really bother me. I mean, one of the parts of this that's so, you know, I, I think it's easy when you look at this story as like Tanya Harding's life to, to lose a sight of what it looked like at the time to have a figure skating scandal, you know, and not just a figure skating scandal, but one that involved like some just totally ridiculously poorly planned, you know, uh, attempts at nefarious doings, like people who are not, uh, incredibly experienced uh incredibly smart criminals right and i think that that is what he is there for is to provide that reminder of when you're not looking at these things from the context of tanya harding's life uh from the outside this was just for a lot of people a delightful if cruel news story you know who would have thought like these, you know, these two rival figure skaters and an attack and like huge drama about who was going to be on the Olympic team. Like, I remember it. It was a huge deal. Uh, and I think that that he at least gets at some of what people looked at from the outside at that time, you know, to be like, wow, what a news story. Why? That's the reason that every like press was like camped out on everyone's lawn and so enraptured because it felt like the kind of perfect ridiculous news story. Right. No, I guess that's fair. I I certainly remember the 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 news story aspect too. And I mean, I'm not ashamed to say that like I completely bought into this notion of you know Nancy Kerrigan as this you know as the hero who had been you know and and Tanya Harding was the villain. And I remember when she skated. Oh, see, and- I always liked. I was like Tanya. <laughs> oh, see, I, I completely, I, I was the, uh, I, I was led along. Uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, fake news media completely tricked me with their fake news. Mm. And uh, I, I bought in and I remember watching her skate, you know, the skate with uh, where her shoelace, you know, came yeah, undone or whatever. Saw, and I was her, like, yeah, skate up on the board with the, the yeah. judges. Oh, I was so excited that she was failing. <laughs> I was a terrible person. Now, I'm, now, and that's part of the reason I like the movie is that it really makes me really rethink all that stuff. And, and um, you know, I, I don't feel good about it now, I, but I'm just being honest about uh, that's how I felt. So, I, I mean, that's a, another thing I like about it. We, 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 we should probably start to wrap it up. But the other thing we haven't really mentioned at all that I think we need to mention because I think it's one of the exceptional parts of the movie is the actual skating in the movie is really good. Um, The, you know, I think some of it was done by Margot Robbie, but I think a lot of it was done by doubles. And then they facially uh, replaced 
her onto this uh, double. And in a lot of the shots, the effect, I mean, occasionally um, you can see. Occasionally you see it. Yeah, yeah occasionally but... you can tell something is up. But then there's some other shots that are really outstanding and very convincing. And the camera is swooping around like the camera is like it feels like it's on ice skates, like it's almost like uh, like an extra person on the ice, like doing a routine with Tanya Harding. And um, I, I, it's like for a movie that you don't I mean, you don't I'm, look, the first time I saw it, I was like really impressed by how good the the figure skating was in this movie. And I felt that, you know, it's not just that it's flashy, too. It really fits into the kind of to me what part of the movie is that her that, you know, she, that when you stripped away all that nonsense and all the tragedy in her private life, that she really was this incredibly gifted skater. And like, that was where her life kind of came together. Even when her life off the ice was like a total mess. Like that's who she was on the ice. She was this like killer. She was just the precision and she was just amazing. And that the, the movie really like captures how good she was and, and gives you that thrill and that, feeling of that with these incredible sequences that you know like i cannot stress enough how like how awesome they are and um the director is craig gillespie you know director i i you know i can't say i was like a huge fan of um although i really liked that little uh like biopic the finest hours he did i think we've mentioned it on the show that was the movie he made right before this which was like a like a like a hurricane rescue movie with Chris Pine and Casey Affleck it was like this weirdly like really good disaster movie. So mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe he's a better director than I give him credit for because he certainly did a good job with this movie. Yeah, I love those skating sequences. I love that the camera gets right on the ice with her. I like that they just look so dynamic, and they also the way they always start on her face, like they show her kind of like preparing to skate. And this look on her face always is this like thousand yard stare of like someone who is just in her head being like, okay, now ready to go. And I, yeah, I think the skating is great. I will say one thing about this movie that doesn't work for me at all. I don't like the music at all. I can't stand the school, like the, the soundtrack choices. I feel like they're more on the nose and obvious than like Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> they're very on the nose in, in some cases. Some of them I think are fine, but there's a couple that are really on the nose. It feels a little to me at times where it's like there's definitely a a, a Scorsese vibe in general to the whole movie. Um, but there's some of those song choices. It feels like they're going a little too hard to try to kind of ape a, a Scorsese movie with – with uh, I, I thought uh, mixed results. I, some of the choices didn't bother me, but some of them are just are, are kind of eye rolling. Well, yeah, it just it goes like Barracuda by heart, you know. Like it has some Devil of these Woman. songs where you're like, yeah, they're just songs that get used so often in soundtracks, and I feel like there's it doesn't they just isn't a lot of power to them anymore. Uh, but yeah, the, that's a fairly minor quibble for a movie I otherwise like quite a bit. Hi, Tanya. You can find it on Hulu. So, Matt, you let me talk you into doing ice skating movies for our topic. And there there are only a few figure skating movies. And I feel like we may not have touched on the obvious ones. So I did want to give a shout out to The Cutting Edge, 1992's finest romantic comedy about a figure skater and a hockey player coming together to compete for Olympic gold. 
stone cold classic. <laughs> and also the other, you know, most famous pick, uh, Ice Castles from 1978. Just the most like uh, extraordinarily gushy, sentimental movie about someone competing to become a figure skater and then losing her sight and then becoming a figure skater again. <laughs> it happens. It's, all, it's another Stone Cold classic. Uh, there are plenty of other figure skating movies out there as well, like that are lesser known. But we decided to talk about any movie that involves ice skating in some way, which opens us up to a world beyond figure skating. And uh, I think that your picks are definitely not necessarily about just figure skating, right, Matt? Well, I have one figure skating and one that was a little a little broader. All right. Well, what you got? Well, my I guess I'll do the one that's kind of uh, figure skating related first, I, because I think it would actually yeah. make I think it would make a pretty good double feature with Itania. Actually, it is another film about the the strange world of figure skating. And that's not something we talked a ton about in our review, but that is something that's a big part of that movie. The, the expectations that are put upon people in that world. And also just kind of the bizarre rituals and the costumes and everything. And, uh, my first pick is also a movie where they have a lot of skating and some facial replacement of the skaters. Um, it is blades of glory from 2007 uh, directed by Josh Gordon and Will Speck. It is currently available for rent, and I think it's one of the more underrated Will, Will Ferrell comedies uh, of that decade. He plays a character with the perfect Will Ferrell character name of Chaz Michael Michaels. He is the bad boy of figure skating. He's not unlike Tanya Harding, I suppose, in some regards. He refuses to play by the rules, and he has this ongoing rivalry with Jimmy McElroy, who is played by Napoleon Dynamite's John Heater, who is his opposite number. His, you know, he's the ultimate by the book straight laced skater. And at this one tournament, they tie, they share the gold, but they get into a crazy fight uh, on the podium and as a result they are both banned from figure skating for life and then through a loophole that they find in the rule book they realize they're only banned from solo skating not pairs so naturally they do what the only logical thing to do which is to team up become the first same-sex figure skating pair in the Olympics although they don't call it the Olympics for legal reasons I'm sure and so they are pitted against this hilarious brother and sister team of Strons and Fairchild von Waldenberg, played <laughs> by Will Arnett and Amy Poehler. And the two guys figure skating together thing, you hear it and you go, oh no, this is going to be a really terrible uh, comedy with a lot of gay panic jokes. But in practice, it's actually not. It's... There's very little of that in the movie, uh, if at all. It's much more about just making fun of the world of figure skating, the costumes, the music, the routines, the movements, the crazy borderline stalkery fans. And I really just love watching Will Ferrell and John Heater yell at each other in this movie. They're a very appealing uh, oil-and-water combo 
And Will Ferrell in particular is just really, really funny in this. I I guess Chaz Michael Michaels is not all that different from any other character he plays. It's, it's <laughs> certainly within his type, but I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the... I was trying to think about why I like it so much, but I, I, I think maybe it's the milieu of figure skating. It's just, you know, that Will Ferrell was, is the consummate hedonistic jerk uh, in almost every movie he made in that era. It didn't really even matter where it was. He just would do the same kind of shtick in different places. And I like most of those movies. But maybe it's just the figure skating. The world of figure skating is so extreme and so over the top that he fits in in a way and all of his outlandishness makes more sense there and feels more natural and believable there than it does somewhere else. And there are these hilarious sequences in the movie that I just, I could watch a million times. There's one after he, his career is in the toilet, he gets a job uh, working in what's basically supposed to be Disney on ice. Although obviously it's not called that either. And, um, he goes out on the ice drunk, he pukes in the mask he's wearing, he's pelted with garbage. It's a tour de force of just uh, just cratering, just uh, hitting, hitting rock bottom. It's hilarious. There's another really funny scene where he is trying to coach uh, uh, the John Heater character through this phone call with the girl that he likes, who's played by Jenna Fisher, who is the sister of the Will Arnett and Amy Poehler characters and they're on the other line, the other end of the line trying to coach her and they both end up saying these ridiculously vulgar things and trying to be seductive and failing miserably. It's just absolutely hilarious. So uh, I greatly enjoyed the excuse to revisit this movie. I've seen it more times than I care to admit Uh, and I watched it again and laughed yet again out loud, I might add, I was sitting in my uh, in at like two in the morning after putting the baby to sleep, rewatching scenes, and and then finished it the next morning because it's so so darn funny. Blades of Glory, it is available right now for rent. All right, uh, for my first pick, I went with something that is also about like very entrenched in the world of figure skating. Uh, it's an animated series, though it is anime, in fact. Yuri on Ice, which you can find on Crunchyroll uh, if you have a subscription there. Or I think it's also available for rent in a lot of places. Matt, have you heard of Yuri on Ice? I don't think so. I feel like if you are not paying attention to anime, the main way you may have heard of Yuri on Ice is that a bunch of ferocious Yuri on Ice fans tried to boycott or like get a Hallmark movie shut down because they thought it was a ripoff of Yuri on Ice, except that it was a straight watching ripoff in which it was about a a female figure skater and her male coach. Whereas Yuri on Ice is about a male figure skater and his male coach who, as much as it's ever explicitly said, do really seem to fall in love. Uh, By the way, that whole uh, Hallmark movie scandal was shut down when it was when one the creator of Yuri on Ice actually spoke up about it and was like calm down and also it was pointed out that the movie went into production long before Yuri on Ice started streaming and was based on a 2009 book anyway but that is how passionately protective people feel of this series which is 12 episodes long uh, they are really obsessed with it and I think when you check it out, it's definitely obsession-worthy. It is this very uh, 
it is a combination of really kind of uh, typical anime uh, romance in that it has one character, the main character, whose name is Yuri. It, it has him as this guy who's kind of uh, quiet, deals with anxiety, uh, is not sure of himself, and he falls in love with and worships and gets coached by his idol, a Russian figure skating phenom who's kind of nearing the end of his, his skating career, Victor. There is also another character in this, a Russian skater named Yuri, which is uh, creates a funny kind of intersection in that Russian Yuri declares Japanese Yuri his enemy because there's only room for one Yuri in the figure skating, competitive figure skating world. But I, this is mostly like a very warm and fuzzy series that also happens to have some really nicely done animated figure skating sequences. The, there's an actual figure skater, uh, Kenji Miyamoto, who did the skating choreography for the series. So uh, it is not just, you know, kind of someone fudging it. They're actually, when, when there are sequences of the figure skating, they go through the whole performance. They're, every episode features pretty heavily at least one big performance. As far as far as I watch, I haven't finished the series yet, but I think I'm going to. It is also just a kind of wonderful teen-worthy romance uh, between these two characters, in which one of these people, uh, Victor, is this outsized, slightly ridiculous. Uh, extraordinarily beautiful talent. And the main character, Yuri, is someone who, you know, deals with anxiety and uncertainty about himself and shyness all of the time. And to see the ways in which they try to communicate how they feel about each other and kind of become closer, it's just really enjoyable to watch. It feels, you know, as cozy as hot cocoa. (laughs) Um, And I, I, it's... It was maybe it's not as huge surprise to me that this series broke through so much in that I feel like it attaches uh, an idea we really like to figure skating, which is that uh, I think people really have this tendency to project every every year, especially when the Olympics happen every four years, to project these personal narratives onto performers because. They just seem so compelling when suddenly you're turning to this this sport that you don't spend a lot of time watching. Well, you may not. I spend some time keeping track of <laughs> uh, other parts of the year uh, that like it suddenly seems just so like awash with uh, all of these dramas. And uh, I think that you saw that with this year, the the Canadian figure skaters, right? Tessa Virtue and Scott Moore were the the Paris skaters where all of uh everyone was like they're in love they must be <laughs> like I I think that this series kind of serves as a good realization of a lot of the projections people tend to put on the personal relationships of actual figure skaters so that is Yuri on Ice you can find it on Crunchyroll or for rent okay 
Sounds like a good pick. My next pick, I you know I couldn't find a second uh, straight up, straight ahead figure skating thing to talk about, and so we we broadened it a little bit, and so I instead went with something that has a skating connection, ice skating. It also has an Olympics connection to Itania, and it also has a biopic connection to Itania. So I chose Miracle the biopic about the famous USA hockey team that beat the Russians at the 1980 Winter Olympics. It is uh, directed by Gavin O'Connor, who's probably best known for his MMA movie Warrior. It is streaming. Which you know I love. You, uh, well, it's a good movie. It's a very good movie. And uh, Miracle is currently on Netflix. You can find it there. I'd actually never seen this movie. I, I, I guess it just fell through the cracks came out i think 2004 i was i think i was i was still in grad school um and then you know i didn't really have television or cable for a while so i'm sure that the i would guess that 90 percent of people who have seen this movie have seen it probably on cable so that's i never had the chance to see it there for a long time and uh finally saw it on netflix and right off the bat what i i sort of liked about it was was like kind of it's like ethos uh, it is a movie called Miracle uh, because, uh, in large part, because the the famous game between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was dubbed the Miracle on Ice, so you call the movie Miracle. But what the movie makes very clear is that this was not a miracle. This was a calculated effort. This was something that was the result of an uh, enormous amount of planning and effort. This was not miraculous, quote-unquote. It was engineered by the team's uh, head coach, Herb Brooks, who's played in the film, by Kurt Russell, with a very good Minnesota accent and a very bad haircut. And he decided, Herb Brooks did, that his all, the only chance of beating the Russians, who were the dominant force in international hockey for years and years before this, was to out-hustle them and out-work them. And so he put together this team that he believed could do that, and then he just, like beat the crap out of them in in training just put them through their paces just tortured them basically just uh, just the worst that just looks just awful what he made them do just so much exercise and skating and it's exhausting just watching them in the movie and you know he says like well i can't guarantee we'll be the best team at the olympics but i can guarantee we will be the best conditioned and then there's this like amazing sports movie scene where He's not happy with the team after a game, like a scrimmage or an exhibition or whatever it is, and he he makes them stay after the game on the ice and like just do I don't know what they're called, but it's like the equivalent of you know like sprints on the ice, back and mm-hmm. forth, back and forth, over and over again, just running them down until they can barely stand up. And throughout the training in the movie, he keeps asking the players like, "What's your name? Where are you from? Like, who do you play for?" introduce yourself and they're always saying oh i'm you know joe smith and i play for the university of minnesota and then after they're like they've been skating for hours and hours in this scene and they've been like broken down they one of them finally says like i'm joe smith and i play for the united states of america and it's like this (laughs) great sports movie moment that uh, gives you chills and you know, now that I think about it, it's really not that far off from something in Whiplash, what he's doing to these young men. But hey, they won the gold medal, so it was all worth it, right? Uh, <laughs> um, Always, yes. Yes. The ends justifies the means. That's what these movies have taught me. So the the um, 
The hockey action in the film is very good. I don't think that they really did any facial replacement like in I, Tanya, but uh, it's it's pretty convincing, pretty exciting. And I also really like the um, relationship between her Brooks and his wife, Patty, in the film, who's played by Patricia Clarkson. You know, it's not the main focus of the movie, but I found their relationship to be very believable and... Um, you know, there's some nice scenes where he's so focused on the team that he's this is his one goal. He's just so driven to do this, and you know, she's just not putting up with his crap. And uh, he, you know, he's trying to get out of picking up one of the kids after school or picking them up from I don't know what soccer practice, whatever it is. And he's just you know, oh, I gotta, I gotta watch the footage here. I, I got, we got team meeting tomorrow morning. Sorry there. <laughs> And she's just like, nope, that's not going to work for me. And I, I just, I, I don't know, I like that. I like the uh, their their relationship quite a bit. So it is, uh, compared to Itania, it's certainly much more of a, um, a meat and potatoes biopic. It is much more straight ahead. It is not a uh, movie like Itania that makes you question the biopic form or that interrogates it or has unreliable narrators. And it's not the juiciest story, certainly. I knew how it ends. I imagine most people know how it ends. But I liked it. I liked the. I, it was kind of like the kind of, you know, it's the sort of movie where knowing what's going to happen is kind of comforting. It has that formula sports movie appeal, and you don't generally watch sports movies because you wonder if they're going to win or lose. You know they're going to win. That's part of the fun <laughs> is just kind of uh, the comfort food aspect of it, and I feel like this movie does that pretty nicely. So that's my second pick, Miracle on Netflix. All right, for my second pick, I went with a movie that doesn't feature a lot of, of figure skating, of ice skating, really, but it features it very strikingly because it becomes this kind of stylistic accent in a story that is not related to figure skating at all. It is mostly about sex and murder, uh, which figure skaters have as much as anyone, but you know. Uh, that would be In the Cut, which is the 2000. 2000- Raging Campion film. You can find it right now on DirecTV and HBO. And, you know, this movie was one that I feel like you can kind of feel it getting a critical reevaluation. It was at the time not, it, it received kind of like mixed to negative reviews from what I remember in 2003. And there was a lot of attention paid to Meg Ryan, who stars in the movie alongside Mark Ruffalo, to her you know, going from this America's sweetheart romantic comedy image to a movie where there are explicit sex scenes and where there's nudity and it just seemed to people like a very deliberate breaking with her older image. And I don't know, I feel like a lot of that baggage now, when you're looking at it, you're just like, oh, it's just a Meg Ryan movie. But, you know, what's the big deal? But I, I've always really liked this movie. And in particular, I've always liked how the figure skating, which is in flashbacks, becomes this, this shorthand for, I would say, the idealistic and innocent and kind of fairy tale version of romance that girls in particular are taught when they are young versus the reality of a world, uh, you know, of both sex and, of course, danger that the grown-up character, played by Meg Ryan, kind of contends with in this really wonderfully grubby New York that is always blurry around the edges and that it's just really hot 
and uh, the characters all always seem to be just like uh, going in and out of divey bars or being unable to sleep and with their windows open on a hot Manhattan night. Uh, the story is, if anything, it's it's about a serial killer who has been uh, like cutting up women in, in the Manhattan neighborhood that Meg Ryan and her sister Jennifer Jason Lee live in, and uh, they are half sisters. And where the figure skating comes in is that when Meg Ryan's character talks about how their father proposed to her mother. And it was on the ice. Uh, he was there with his fiance, but couldn't take his eyes off of her mother, uh, off of this other girl. And so his fiance gets so upset that she takes off his ring and stomps off. And he goes and skates with this other woman and then proposes to her, you know, the same day that he's met her. And uh, you see these kind of dreamy, uh, old school looking uh, kind of like older, uh, you know, uh, mimicking footage, and you see this romance unfurl, and then later you see these kind of these dark, gruesome implications uh, that are supposed to be standing in for the heartbreak that was later caused when the her father ran off with uh, other women and proceeded, you know, left her and proceeded to have this life in which he fathered multiple children with different women and married again and again. I think that one of the things, looking back at reviews of this movie at the time, that I feel like I feel people didn't seem to get, which is that it is a movie about that giant gap between the idea of romance and especially the idea of romance as it's taught to young women and this idea of courtship and, you know, uh, uh, someone sw like swooping you off your feet and this, uh, this courtship bracelet that Mark Meg Ryan's character gets that has all of these little charms for like, um, you know, getting engaged and getting married and having a baby uh, versus the reality of like a grown-up world of sex romance and also a grown-up world in which you, you know sometimes uh, that, that you're you put yourself at risk by by opening yourself up to someone both emotionally and also in the film physically there is like literally a killer out there and every man in the main character's life at a certain point seems like he might be the killer. <laughs> Uh, and I, I think there's this kind of that wooziness that just, I think, deals with those contrasts and, and deals with, I think, a certain like kind of dark realization you have uh, as a kind of grown up looking for love that like it is a considerably more complicated process uh, to uh, to kind of suss out who another person is and whether they will hurt you or not. Um, I you know, and I I think that the 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 ice skating becomes this really handy shorthand for that because along with the case or rah that starts the movie and ends the movie, uh, it is this kind of dreamily naive. Uh, expression of a desire to be loved 
and uh, nothing else about this movie is easy, which is one of the reasons I like it so much. In the cut, you can find it on DirecTV and HBO. All right, let's wrap up the show with Behind the Eight Ball. We give you some uh, options that are uh, new on streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also send you one film chosen blindly by number from each other's my lists on Netflix. Allison, would you like to go first this time? Sure, I'll go first. All right. Well, let's start with three new releases. Okay. New to PBS is the Chinese Exclusion Act, a new documentary from Rick Burns and Lee Shan Yu. Uh, a very PBSy documentary in the Rick Burns and Ken Burns style, you know, in which there are photos and they kind of like the camera kind of like moves across the photo as there is voiceover um, or or historical documents. But it is about something as about a kind of swath of history and particularly U.S. immigration history that I think is really under discussed, uh, which would be the you know 1982 law that made it illegal for Chinese workers to come to the U.S. and for Chinese nationals to ever become citizens. Um, And, you know, given immigration and who gets to be a citizen is, yet again, a very hot topic. I think it's always good to have reminders of history in this case. So you can find that on PBS, the Chinese Exclusion Act. New to Netflix is Bad Genius, a 2017 Thai heist film uh, about a student who devises this scheme to cheat on exams. Eventually it becomes like this national thing and it was inspired by a real case. It uh, uh, becomes also a way of exploring kind of class and teen issues. It was a big hit uh, both in Thailand and abroad. It became a kind of like very successful export uh, in Asian countries. And it's one I'd heard a bit about. So I was happy to see it pop up on Netflix, Bad Genius. And finally, new to Tubi TV is Boarding Gate. This would be the 2007 Olivier Assayas film starring Ozzy Argento, Michael Madsen, Carl Ing, and Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth in a small but very memorable cameo. Uh, It's hard to explain this movie. It is... I think the best way to describe it is it's a, it is the kind of SAS movie of like the demon lover variety where it's this kind of woozy jet lagged international thriller in which it feels almost sci-fi in nature, except it's not. And uh, it's just, I, I found like a tremendous amount of fun, this kind of sleazy thriller made with this great international cast And it's one that's been on my mind recently, just some of the imagery in it. So I've been looking forward to seeing it again. It's Boarding Gate on Tubi TV. All right. How about two listener recommendations? We got a listener recommendation from Chris, who recommends Creep and Creep 2 streaming on Netflix. Chris says, sound footage movies are everywhere. Often if I see a movie is of the found footage ilk, I avoid it. When I saw Mark Duplass had been involved in two found footage horror films, though, I decided to give them a try. I was rewarded with Creep, which had an original slant on the genre. I couldn't help thinking Creep 2 would just be a retread sequel, but gave it a shot because of the goodwill the first installment had built up. And once again, Duplass and his co-writer and director Patrick Bryce didn't disappoint. 
As much as I'm adverse to A, found footage films, and B, sequels, according to Letterboxd, a Creep 3 might be in the works, and I can't wait. And then we have a second recommendation from Andre, who writes, couldn't help but bite at the declaration that you guys are low on listener recommendations. I'm in Australia, so he wasn't in to win our our giveaway a few weeks ago, but it says, I feel I must try and represent my tribe here and let you know of an Antipodean classic from the, from the eighties. Uh, and director Jane Campion's debut, more Jane Campion, always a good thing. Sweetie from, uh, 1989, which you can find on Filmstruck back in the day when we had our own Australian Cisco and Ebert going by the names, David and Margaret, older versions of singer and Wilmore, if you like. The David Half named this as one of his favorite films of all time. The less said about it, the better. So check it out and see the raw talent of Campion on display for the very first time. Uh, that is Sweetie on Filmstruck. Thank you, Andre. And thank you, Chris. All right. And one film chosen by name by number from your my list. Uh, you gave me number two. And number two on my my list is Bobby Jean. This is a documentary from last year about a dancer uh, named Bobby Jean Smith, who had, when the film was being made, has spent like 10 years as part of this famous Israeli dance company and decides to come back to the U.S. and figure out basically what's next for her life. Uh, involving these relationship with another dancer, involving uh, the idea of being back in the U.S., working on new things. Uh, I just had heard good things about it. It sounds like an interesting movie. It's directed by Elvira Lind, who I'm also curious about because she's Oscar Isaac's wife. Uh, this is an existing documentarian anyway with like a, a career mostly in things in TV. But I am also, I, I, I think that documentaries about dancers are interesting not just because you can include dance footage because a dancer's life uh, professional arc is so difficult and short and hard to predict you know uh having spent 10 years as a dancer somewhere that can be a lot really long time in the life of a dancer and i think the idea of someone who's 31 and kind of grappling with these major changes is a kind of fascinating timeline so that's Bobby Jean, and it is on Netflix. That was number two on my my list. Matt, are you ready? Yes. All right, give me three new releases. Okay, first up on Amazon Prime is The Disaster Artist, the surprisingly good James Franco movie about the making of a very bad movie, The Room. Uh, Franco plays Tommy Wiseau, the mad auteur of The Room. The film is based on the book of the same name, co-written by Greg Sestero, one of the room's co-stars and producers. I really loved the book, and I thought the movie did a very uh, impressive job of translating it to the screen. And Franco, I thought, was really tremendous as Tommy Wiseau. A very good performance that, uh, you know, kind of I, Tanya-esque. It, 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 doesn't, uh, it doesn't treat him to be anything other than what he is. Um, it is a little, it's not really an impression, but it really captures him and does make him kind of sympathetic, which I would have thought was impossible before I saw the movie. So that is the disaster artist that's streaming on Amazon prime. Next up on Hulu is the quick and the dead Sam Raimi's revisionist Western starring Sharon Stone as a Clint Eastwood style, uh, mysterious cowboy 
cowgirl, I guess, who enters a gunfighting competition in this town, lorded over by a corrupt mayor played by Gene Hackman. Was was a flop in its day in the 90s, but if you're a fan of Sam Raimi's visual style, The Quick and the Dead has some of his coolest images and the cast, which also includes Russell Crowe and a very young Leonardo DiCaprio, is terrific. Definitely one of my favorite underrated 90s movies, The Quick and the Dead on Hulu. Finally, I love that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, it is way better than its uh, – I was going to say its reputation, but it doesn't really have one. Nobody, nobody talks about The Quick and the Dead. It's a good movie. Okay, lastly, but not leastly, I wanted to give a shout-out to the latest Scott Adkins direct-to-video action film, The Debt Collector. Um, Adkins plays a martial arts gym owner. He's desperate for cash. He accepts a job as muscle for a bookie. He spends his first weekend on the job learning the ropes from a cynical veteran who's played really, really well, like a shockingly good performance um, by actor Louis Mandalore. Uh, and so he watched these two guys. It's almost like a really bleak, morose, buddy comedy, except it's not that funny. Uh, we watch them go from like one debtor to another, getting into these misadventures. Occasionally, martial arts fights break out. I wasn't crazy about the ending, but otherwise, I thought this was like way above average for a direct-to-video uh, action movie. I am partial to Scott Adkins, so maybe that's part of it. But um, good fight scenes on top of a, uh, a like the rest of the movie is almost like a sleazy, like new Hollywood seventies-ish kind of thing plus fight scenes, which was a recipe I found very enjoyable. So it's called The Debt Collector. It is going to be available on, on uh, you know, digital HD. You'll be able to rent it or buy it online starting on June 5th, so pretty much by the time you are hearing this. Okay. Give me two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Emery in Phoenix, Arizona, who writes, I've been patiently waiting for the rest of the world to discover Bill Waterston's, no, not the Calvin and Hobbes guy, directorial debut, Dave Made a Maze. I saw it at last year's Phoenix Film Festival and was completely blown away, and now it's available to stream on Hulu. This is like all of the best parts of Janae, Terry Gilliam, Michelle Gondry, and Jim Henson all made out of cardboard. It's a great example of DIY filmmaking, great attention to detail, and what must have been tons of man hours to construct one of the best movie sets of all time. Please watch this film so I'm no longer the only one talking about it. Sounds intriguing, Emery in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm going to check this out. Dave Made a Maze on Hulu. And next up, we have a recommendation from Christopher in Lexington, Kentucky who writes, I would like to make an unusual recommendation because it is not for a particular film or even for films you can stream per se. It's a new Blu-ray distribution company, Arrow Video. So what do you do if you love the beautiful presentation of movies with lots of intelligent and informative extras that we have come to associate with Criterion but are not particularly interested in traditional quote-unquote art films? Well, Arrow is there to fill the gap. Their presentations are wonderful, but they generally put out what would be considered B-films or exploitation films. They seem right now to be especially focused on Japanese noir, 80s slasher, and Italian giallo films from the 70s. Uh, A fair number of their catalog are also available either through Amazon Prime or to rent or buy through Amazon. Among the Giallo films I would recommend 
are what have you done to Solange, the bloodstained butter, bu- butterfly, don't torture a duckling, and your vice is a locked room and only I have the key. How is that for a title? All are available on Amazon if you want to take a look at them before purchasing the Blu-ray. Um, and because the Criterion-esque presentation does also come with Criterion-esque pricing, Christopher writes. However, I would encourage people to seek out the Blu-rays themselves. It is quality presentation of films that are often not considered worthy of such. I would particularly recommend their release of Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. It is breathtaking to behold, as it was always meant to be seen. So that is a recommendation for the films of Arrow Video, a distributor that I agree is doing some very good stuff. That is a recommendation from Christopher in Lexington, Kentucky. Thank you, Christopher. All right. And give me one from your Netflix My List. You gave me number five. And number five on my list right now is Inconceivable with Nicolas Cage, Faye Dunaway, Gina Gershon. It says a couple trying to conceive invite a woman with a mysterious past to move in with them, but it's an invitation they might come to regret. I think Allison mentioned this on the show. It definitely did. I think it might have been her My List pick um, some episodes ago, and she described it, and I said, oh, I'm going to watch this movie, or at the very least put it on my My List. And I have not watched it yet, but I did add it, and so I'm hoping to get around to it soon, because how could you not want to see a movie with that premise and that cast? Uh, I don't know. It's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it. So that is inconceivable uh, on 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 uh, Netflix. Let's get to our intriguing batch of three listeners' choice options for our next episode. Our listeners will choose from one of these three. I think it's a very strong batch. The first one I've already mentioned myself. It is the Disaster Artist which is now available on Amazon Prime, the film about the the room, the making of the room, the masterpiece of terribleness. Um, if we we did this one, I, supp- I don't know, if, have we done an episode about the making, like m- movie making, movies about movies? I don't Feels know. like we probably have. We <laughs> haven't prepared. Uh, we probably should know this, but we don't. So uh, that would be an option. Or bad movies in general. We've done we've done sort of that. It's probably a category that we could revisit, I suppose. Or maybe we could just watch all the other things Tommy Wiseau has done. What do you think, Allison? Yeah, let's please. Didn't he make a TV series as well? Yes. I've heard it's one of the worst things. Yes, <laughs> and there's some new thing that he's... Uh, promoting. I don't know exactly what it is, but I know Greg Sestero was involved in that too. I think it's called like Best Friends or Best Fiends, mm. something like that. So uh, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what we would do there, but there's definitely some options. So that's your first pick, potential pick, The Disaster Artist on Amazon Prime. Your second pick is from a director I've been following for a long time uh, and have been, you know, always enjoy watching her movies, Lynn Shelton, who has a new movie out. It was in theaters briefly uh, the other month, and it just kind of came and went so quickly. I think it was in March, and so I'm a little surprised to find it out on Netflix so quickly, but I guess that's the way things work now. Yeah. It is called Outside In, and it stars Jay Duplass as a guy who gets out of prison, uh, thanks in part to his former high school teacher, who's played by Edie Falco, who's kind of become his prison pen pal advocating for him. 
and then it's about their relationship after he gets out of prison in which he declares romantic interest in her and she you know has a she's married she has a kid and doesn't know whether she what she wants from this uh so that's outside in i actually haven't seen it yet i'm drawing all of that from the basic description uh, but I watched the trailer and I was intrigued. And, you know, in general, Lynn Shelton is someone I haven't loved all of her movies, but I really like her style a lot. So I would love to see a new movie from her. And I, you know, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of things we can talk about there. Getting released from prison movies, uh, ex-con movies. There's a whole realm of things there that yes. I think uh, we could explore. Um, so that is Outside In, your second pick. It is streaming on Netflix. Your third option is a TV miniseries from Days of Yore, the year 1990 to be exact. It is the original TV miniseries version of It, which originally aired on ABC in 1990. The cast, which is pretty crazy cast looking back, includes John Ritter, Annette O'Toole, and Harry Anderson, the late, recently, sadly departed Harry Anderson. And, of course, Tim Curry plays the evil clown Pennywise. And uh, as Allison and I were discussing off-air, I have never seen this. I have never seen the original version of it. I did see the movie version, and I liked it quite a bit, actually. But I've never read the book. I've never read almost any Stephen King books. Um, but I've never seen the TV version of it. So we thought that might be... An interesting thing to discuss, the TV version, and maybe to compare it a little bit to the new film. I think we did do an episode all about Stephen King adaptations, though, Allison. Mm, so we could Probably. Do, yeah, so I don't think we could do that. What other options could we do for a theme here? Evil clowns? <laughs> or clowns in general? Clowns in general. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe movies about... Uh, childhood fears? I don't know. Well, we could, we could, we'll figure something out. Or maybe we could just do other, like, vintage TV miniseries or TV movies or something. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting t- to see, like, what's time out when, there. Yeah. From the time when, you know, there was, like, every week or every month there was a, you know, a big glossy TV movie on ABC or the broadcast networks. That might be kind of fun. That could be good. Yeah. yeah. That might be an interesting one. All right, so that's option number three. That is the original miniseries version of It, which is available on Hulu. All right, now it's all up to you. Tell us which of these streaming options we should review on the next episode by voting in the poll that's at the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com. We'll also post links to the poll on our social media feeds. We're on Facebook and Twitter at filmspottingsvu. You've got until Monday, June 11th at noon to vote. Uh, that's when we announce the winner, which will give you about a week if you want to watch it in advance before our next episode comes out on Tuesday, June 19th. In addition to being able to vote at filmspottingsvu.com, it's also where you can find our episode archive, along with links to where you can stream or rent all the titles we mention on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. Find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you picked. Until then, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And definitely also follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU, where we drop links throughout the day to things that are new on streaming that you might want to know about. And for FilmSpottingSVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.